I want to invite you, if you would, to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And as we get started this morning, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had a moment? Have you ever had a moment where God thrust you into a situation and you had to choose whether you were going to be the exception to the rule or the rule? That sound familiar? In other words... Have you ever had to decide whether you'd act according to your beliefs or give yourself a free pass? That sound familiar? One of those things that we we intersect in our lives every once in a while. I want you to take that question and sit with it for just a bit, and we'll revisit a little bit later this morning. You know, when Sean called me a couple of weeks ago and and asked if he'd be willing to come in and and speak today, uh, he told me how he was in the midst of of this series on the parables of Jesus called The Storyteller. And I I love that, that series name because that's exactly how Jesus loved to teach. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to lean into story. We're going to let Jesus tell a story or two to us from his parables. But we're going to do one thing just a little bit differently than you might be accustomed to when encountering the parables. Normally you start with the parable, the story, and then you unpack it from there. What we're going to do today is we're going to start with some of Jesus' teaching, and then we're going to let him use parable, let him use story to unpack some of his teaching. So... How many of you have ever heard anyone utter this phrase? Well, Jesus said, do not judge. Show of hands. Thank you. I appreciate the aggression on that. That was good. Yeah. Do not judge. I thought I'd see a lot more hands go up. Let me ask you again. How many of you have ever heard someone say, do not judge? Or Jesus says, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, It's likely one of the most famous and oft-quoted and and well-known passages in all of Scripture these days. And it always seems to follow a moment where someone says or does something rather unsavory, right? Uh, And so the idea is like, how dare you have an opinion about something that I did? Don't you know that Jesus says, thank you so much. You guys have heard it too. And so right there, we're supposed to be disarmed, right? Like, oh, thank you. I forgot about that. You're right. I'm sorry. But this is where context comes into play. Because what if... What if that's not what Jesus was really saying at all? Well, what if it's really just more of a convenient and, frankly, a a rather poor way of understanding Jesus' real message and, and, frankly, Scripture as a whole? The idea is if I can make the Bible say that people should just leave me alone, then I can do whatever I want. And it turns out there's a lot more that we need to look at if we're going to truly understand what this do not judge comment really means. It turns out context is everything. Say that with me, church. Context is everything. It's everything. And I'll illustrate my point. Sometime back, I came across a funny article where someone had intentionally taken quotes from the 2015 primary presidential debates out of context. They just grabbed random quotes that people had said that night and said, here, try to understand what these people are talking about out of context. It was totally purposeful, totally just meant to be humorous. But these are real quotes from 2015. Marco Rubio, you remember that name. He once said, 40% of the people who come here illegally come legally. (laughs) Later that same night, he also said, and this may be news to you, America is not a planet. 
And finally, Carly Fiorina once said, we have to keep it alive to harvest its brain. <laughs> now, what is it? And why are we talking about harvesting brains in presidential? I have no idea. And obviously, the answer here is not that what they were saying is awful or weird or anything to shame them, but that quotes without context can mislead. Would you agree? Okay. So when Jesus says things like, do not judge, are we sure we're understanding his words correctly? Are we sure we're understanding them in context? It's like trying to appreciate the Mona Lisa with a microscope. It's like trying to, to gaze at the grandeur of El Capitan through a PVC pipe or a, a paper towel roll or something along those lines, right? In order to understand Jesus' words more clearly, sometimes we have to back up and we have to see the entirety, the context of what he's actually saying. So let's talk about how we relate to other people, if we could particularly those we might find ourselves at odds with, because if you're anything like me, you know a lot of people. And chances are you, you like most of them. You consider most of them your friends. But maybe there's a small percentage of people who you, you know, you're not really a fan of. You don't like for whatever reason it might be. And sometimes those reasons are, are petty and silly and dumb. Like maybe it's the way they dress. Or maybe it's the way they laugh, or perhaps the, the status of their resting face is less than pleasant, or something along those lines, right? We have all these weird things that we, we form opinions about other people based on. And then there are times when those reasons feel a little bit more justified. It may be that, that somebody we got into an argument with, or someone that we got into a physical fight with, or someone we've had litigation with, any number of things, right? It might even be somebody who, do, who lied to you or lied about you or just said the wrong thing on the wrong day at the wrong time and you just never forgot it. You ever been there? Okay. Whatever the reason may be, we all tend to encounter people in our lives who we just don't like. And in the most severe of cases, we might even go so far as to consider them our enemies, right? One of my first enemies, I remember, was a kid named Kevin Wade. I, uh, I decided I was going to go with my stepbrother one day down to the playground in my school, and we were going to play basketball. And so we get down there, and Kevin is there with some of his friends, and they're skateboarding on the blacktop. And my stepbrother did what my stepbrother does, and he starts mouthing off to Kevin and his friends, and I have to do what I have to do, and I have to step in and, and get in the way. And next thing I know, we're throwing fists. And he bled a little, and I bled a little, and we walked away, and I thought, you know, like most childhood fights, it was behind us. We're fifth graders or something like that. And it was. And two years later, I'm in middle school, and I'm walking to class one day, and I feel right in the back of my head. And I turn around, I look back, and it's Kevin. And he's got, you've ever seen those candy necklaces that are like elastic, and they have little hard candies around them? He's biting those things in half, and he's using the elastic as a slingshot, a rather effective one, I might add, to nail me in the back of the head. And I'm thinking, man, what do I do about this right now? Because I had been told from my parents at an early age, don't ever get in trouble in school. Because if you have any hope of going to Harvard or Stanford or Yale or Princeton, there's like a, a master record that they're keeping of you and they're gonna see this and you're done. So I'm like, okay, I can't get involved right now. I have to do the right thing. I can't engage. But here's what I want you to consider. I may have done the right thing, right? and not retaliated in anger. But can you guess how I felt about him deep down inside my heart? 
Not a fan. In fact, all these, all these years later, if I were to run into him again as an adult, I still don't know how I'd feel about him. <laughs> or maybe I do, and I just don't want to admit it to all of you. Yeah. But what I want you to see is that there can be a disconnect between what we do with our words and with our hands and what, how we feel about people deep down inside our heart. In other words, I may not wrong my enemies actively, but what's happening deep down in here may be a whole different story. And so raise your hand if you can think of someone in your life who you've just written off. Like your, your relationship with this person seems utterly unredeemable. You guys are way nicer than I thought. I think we all have, right? And thank you for those who are being honest. I saw a few hands. I appreciate you. That's courage. There may be people in this room right now who feel that way about one another. How about that? In fact, over the last couple of years, all throughout this country, feelings and, and things have been said between brothers and sisters in Christ over political matters and social media habits and all kinds of stuff, right? We've, we've all experienced this. And so the reality is that, that Jesus has a lot to say to us about people in our lives who we don't like, people who, who may have mistreated us or, or people who we may even consider our enemies. And so here in the middle of Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, Jesus goes up onto a mountainside to pray with his disciples. And eventually... With them, he goes back down the mountain and he stands on this level place and he begins to teach a large crowd of people. Now, we call this text the Sermon on the Plain. And in many ways, Jesus' teaching here is going to run parallel to his teaching in Matthew 5 through 7, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, now, is this the, the same event or a different event? Is he standing on a mountain? Is he standing on a plain? Where is he standing? Honestly, the answer is kind of speculative. But I will say the purpose of this text is not to have precise clarity on where Jesus is standing when he's, when he's uttering these words, right? It's, it's the context and the content of what he's saying. And so we're going to focus on the teaching that Jesus is about to offer to the people. So all the people have come from all over to listen, to hear Jesus' words. They're intrigued at the work that he's doing. They're intrigued by the things that he's teaching. And so he begins to speak, and this is what he says. This is verse 20. Looking at his disciples, he said... Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. Because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. And so right off the bat, if, if you know Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, this is going to look and sound very familiar, right? In both cases, Jesus begins teaching with a, a series of blessings. In Matthew, he, he lists eight or nine, depending on how you want to count them. And here in Luke, he lists four. And in both texts, Jesus is going to focus on some similar themes. But what I want you to pay attention to, what I want you to notice this morning are the blessings that Luke focuses on in his version of this sermon that differentiates it from Matthew's. And so he's speaking to the poor and to the hungry and to those who are weeping and to those who are excluded 
and to those who are insulted, and to those who are rejected. And so when you think about those groups of people, those kinds of people, those themes specifically, I want you to imagine how those people, that the people that Jesus is speaking to feel about other people. In other words, they aren't poor and hungry and weeping and insulted for no reason, right? To some degree, they've been provoked to feel that way. And this is where Luke and Matthew begin to diverge a little bit because Matthew's account speaks only of the blessings. But then Luke comes in and he circles back around with a series of four woes. And these four woes run in parallel to those four blessings. So he continues, verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. And woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. And woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So you ask yourself, how, how were these people provoked? Well, Jesus implies that they have provokers. They have oppressors. They have people who have mistreated them. Blessed are the poor. I'm sorry, yeah, blessed are the poor, but woe to the rich. He says, blessed are the hungry, but woe to the well-fed. Blessed are those who weep, but woe to those who laugh. And blessed are those who are hated, but woe to those who men speak well of. This, this language of, of blessings and woes is not new language. I believe to those listening, it may have sounded oddly similar to words spoken by God through Moses uh, way back in Deuteronomy 28 to the people of Israel. So when Jesus begins talking about blessings and woes, it's supposed to hit them hard. It's supposed to wake them up because this crowd has the benefit of hindsight. They know what happened back in the Exodus. And when God warned them of what would happen if they were disobedient, how they would lose the land and then eventually follow through on that, they understand that God is the kind of God who follows through on what he says. But here's the plot twist. There is a plot twist that doesn't take the poor and the hungry and the hated and the oppressed off the hook. And this is where Jesus turns his attention to next. Oftentimes, we read the Bible in much the same way that we experience our own education growing up, right? You go to school and you take an hour of math and an hour of reading and an hour of history and an hour of science, right? And did that hour of math have anything to do with that hour of reading? Did that hour of reading have anything to do with that hour of science? Or were they kind of treated on an island like they were totally isolated subjects? Kind of the latter, right? And so when we read texts like Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, if your Bible is anything like mine, you have all these little section headings at the top. And we can sometimes, without realizing it, subconsciously begin to do the same thing. We put these blocks of text into little compartments, and we only try to understand those compartments. And so blessings and woes seem to have nothing to do with love for enemies, which seems to have nothing to do with judging others, which has nothing to do with planks and specks in people's eyes and so on. But that's not the case. And so sometimes these section headings that our Bibles have can actually do more to hinder us than they can do in helping us understand. So I want you to imagine, as you look in your Bible right now, that these section headings that you see throughout this page aren't there, because in reality, they're not. This is not in the original text at all. And so Jesus proclaims these four blessings, followed by four woes, and then he continues speaking about the same subject matter. Notice what's the first word in verse 27. 
but, right? It's a, it's a, a continuous thought. It's a, it's a word that means on the contrary. So what comes next is a connected thought to Jesus' words about blessings and woes. And it's Jesus acknowledging that those who are poor and those who are hungry and those who are weeping and those who are hated most assuredly consider their oppressors as enemies, just as we're all inclined to do when we're wronged, just as I felt about Kevin Wade. And yet listen to what Jesus tells them. He says, but on the contrary, to you who are listening, I say, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to your enemies. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back, and then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Everything Jesus is saying runs counter to what is common and cultural. It did then, it still is today. Would you agree? When you've been beat up and you've been spit on and you've been put down and you've been oppressed, the very last thing that you want to do is turn around and love that person, is turn around and give them the shirt off your back, is turn around and offer them the other cheek. Nothing about those words makes sense to our flesh. Nothing. And this is precisely why someone like Martin Luther King Jr. made such an impact, the kind of impact that he did. It's because he didn't just read these words as ideals. He went and he put them into practice. And then he raised up thousands and millions of other people who agreed to do the same thing. There is power in what Jesus is saying here. But I think every single one of us can acknowledge how impossible this all can feel. It can feel impossible. Would you agree with that? But I want you to notice something about this section. Everything Jesus says here does not necessarily involve feelings. It involves action. It involves action. What does it look like to love your enemies? Well, it means that you do good to those who hate you. It means you do to others as you would have them do to you. It means that you turn cheeks and give shirts and lend freely. Love is portrayed as action, something you do. And yet again, if all you did was stop here in verse 36, where your Bible probably has a nice little heading to break this text up, you're going to miss something critical because Jesus still isn't done speaking. He continues in the midst of, of all of this talk of oppression and enemies, and he says your favorite words, do not 
judge, then you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Do you see what Jesus does here? You see how these, these texts, these chunks of text, relate to one another. Jesus moves from the external, what we do, to the internal, what's going on in our hearts, what's going on in our minds. And so what do we do as people when we encounter someone who has wronged us, when we encounter someone who we don't like, when we encounter someone who is a legitimate enemy of ours? Well, I'll tell you what we do. If you're anything like me, at least... We often make up our minds about those people. We make up our minds about them. From that point forward, that person will never get close to me again. That person will never hurt me again. I will never trust that person again because that person is a jerk, a liar, a cheat, a thief, a nothing. And when we start using words like that, what have we done? We've already made up our mind. What was that, Jeff? Yeah, we've judged. We've already made up our mind about that person. We've judged them. We've written them off. And so this word judge here in the Greek is a word that that means something like condemn or decided or or make up our minds about. It's, It's something we all do when we're prepared to write off a particular person or a particular group of people, which is something that we struggle with. When we use language like that, we are taking someone we consider an enemy and we are simultaneously pronouncing words about their worth. That person is nothing. That person is nothing but a blank. And and you've all heard these words. Relevant words in recent years that I've heard include things like liberal or snowflake or boomer or millennial or socialist or communist or whatever it might be. You've certainly heard these terms. Maybe some of you have used these terms. You know, we all said we had enemies. We all said that we had people that we'd we'd written off from time to time, people we considered our relationship with to be somewhat unredeemable. And so just look at your own heart for a moment. What kinds of labels, what kinds of of judgments have you pronounced over them? How, How have you described some of your enemies in your heart? I don't need you to share that answer with me, but just sit with that for a moment. Were they punks or idiots or liars or jerks or scumbags or whatever? Something worse? I don't know. When we begin to use language like that, we, we've already made up our minds that these, these are people who aren't worthy. Maybe they're not worthy of saving. They're not worthy of my love or attention. Whatever it is, they're, they're no better than, than a burning pile of refuse to some degree in our minds. And here in the midst of, of a talk on a mountain where Jesus is talking, he's, he's talking to the victims, not the oppressors. He's talking to the victims of these people. And what is he saying? He says, love them. Don't write them off. Forgive them. Give to them. Do good to them. Every single one of us in this room, if you're being honest, probably wants to say, no way. Absolutely not. No way. We all feel like some people have just gone too far. 
Some people have crossed the line. Some people aren't worthy of the blood of Christ. Some people are too hateful and too evil. And yet Jesus says to those listening that the same standard they use to make up their minds and and pronounce judgment on their enemies is a standard that God will use for them and for us. And so in Jesus' day, when people would go to the marketplace to buy grain, they'd use the, the loose fabric in their garments to carry it. Almost like when you were a kid and you needed to, to carry boulders from one place to another and so you'd pick them up and you'd carry them over here and drop them, right? That's the kind of language that, that Luke 6 is using here. This is what Jesus talks about when he says a, a good measure, like pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. That's how God gives to each and every one of us. He overflows his mercies and his blessings. His blessings overflow our ability to carry them. We can't carry all the blessings that God has. Would you agree? Amen. I remember this memory when I was in middle school. Uh, I used to not eat lunch at school, and I, I decided one day, well, I would walk home every day, and I'd walk by this Burger King, and this is when Whoppers were 99 cents. Remember that? So I'd walk in there, I'd plunk down my dollar six, I'd get my Whopper, and I'd keep walking, and I'd enjoy it, because middle school diets, you know, they're, they're amazing. Um, and one day I decided I, I wanted something a little different. I was kind of tired of Whoppers, so I went in and I asked for, you know, onion rings. So I ordered like a smaller, medium, I'm expecting one of those little cardboard things of, of Burger King onion rings. But I'd been coming in every day, and these Burger King employees had gotten used to seeing my face. They kind of knew me by name. We had a relationship. So I order onion rings, and by the time they're ready, next thing I know, the girl hands me a bag. I got a full bag of onion rings. Like, I ordered like 15 or 20, and I got like 300. (laughs) And again, middle school diets, I probably enjoyed every last one of them, as you can see. but I'll never forget how that made a difference. Not, it didn't make a difference. Well, it made a difference, but not the one I wanted. Uh, it made an impact on me because I, I never forgot it. Something about generosity, when we get more than we ask for, when we get more than we deserve, something about that is memorable to us. And it's a silly analogy, but those onion rings were a blessing that ever flew that day. So what I want you guys to see is that that's the way God loves us. That's the way God loves us. Think of all the things that you've done wrong over the years. And then consider how merciful God has been to you in your life. And now that's the kind of mercy Jesus calls his followers to extend even to their enemies. Even to their enemies. And so he continues by telling them a story. This is where the storyteller part starts to come in. So he tells them a parable. He says, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. So why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank or the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? He says, no, you hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your eye then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What's he saying? He's talking to those of us who don't think we can get on board, who think that those evil, despicable, ugly enemies of ours don't deserve grace and mercy. 
It's natural that he'd want people, or that we would want people who have wronged us to experience justice, right? That's what blessings and woes are all about. God is a God of justice, but ultimately God handles that part, not us. For us, Jesus is concerned with what's happening right here. He's concerned with our heart condition. Do we see an enemy and do we make up our minds about that person? And if so, how do we begin to overcome that? How do we overcome that? Some people feel like they just can't. I can't will myself to extend grace and mercy to people who've wronged me. That's the, and yet that's what Jesus is talking about. That's where Jesus' words come into play here because blind people can't lead blind people. When we are blind to our own sin and our own need for mercy and our own need for grace, we can't see clearly to recognize the mercy and the grace that Jesus commands us to show even our enemies. We can't see it. And so I want you to notice that nowhere in this text does Jesus ever say, hey, don't point out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Is that what he says? Go like this. That's not what he says. He says what? First, first take the plank or the log that is in your eye out, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Church, before we can ever get serious about treating our enemies with the the mercy and the grace that Jesus commands, before we can ever work on not writing people off and, and speaking condemning words over them, we have to look at the man or the woman in the mirror. We have to start there. When we cannot properly see ourselves as hopelessly in need of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness, we'll we'll never be able to practice the stuff that Jesus is talking about. And that's where a lot of people are, most of us, in fact. Most of us are as broken and as hopeless as every single enemy that we have. And we can't see it in ourselves. And so we're blind to it. And so to illustrate, one article I read worded this really, really well, right? I'm quiet. Maybe you're unassertive, but he's a wimp. And I'm not pointing at anyone specifically over here, just to be clear. (laughs) I'm concerned. Maybe you're curious, but he's nosy. I'm thrifty. You're a bit tight. He's what? Cheap. I drive with the flow of traffic. (laughs) You go over the speed limit. He's risky. He's reckless. How many of us are so blind to our own faults, and so we, we excuse them or we consider them normal or appropriate, and yet what do we do with the faults of others? We magnify them and we fixate on them. And we make them of utmost significance and importance. For most of us, that's where the enemies in our lives come from. They don't come from people who've caused us irreparable harm. They come from people who are flawed, just as we are flawed. Would you agree? And we've allowed ourselves to so fixate on their flaws that we cannot see our own and we cannot fix our own. And so it's hard to get specific because Jesus' teaching here is so broad sweeping. I mean, it intersects just about every part of our lives. 
Because all of us do this when we encounter injustice, when we encounter hardship, when we encounter perceived mistreatment. And I wish I had time to dig into the rest of Luke chapter 6, but, but I just don't. And so as we prepare to draw to a close, I want to take you back to verse 36 of Luke chapter 6. Because it's these words that, that form the pivot point. These words that form the hinge or the thrust of Jesus' message. It's this. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. In other words, don't judge your enemies. Don't make up your mind about your enemies. Be merciful. Can you say that with me? Do not judge. Be merciful. Be merciful. Church, that's what Jesus' words on the plane that day boil down to. If we have been shown mercy, and would you agree that we have? We have. Then we are called to show mercy. And by definition, mercy is never extended to people who deserve it. Mercy is never extended to people who deserve it. You can't deserve mercy. It doesn't work that way. Mercy is something we receive freely from God. And mercy is something that Jesus calls us to extend freely to others, even our enemies. And so in this room, we've all lived a diverse set of lies. Some of us in this room have been abused and assaulted. Some of us have been wronged and we've been cheated. Some of us have been the victim of some deeply hurtful things like racism and and other forms of discrimination. I don't need to know everyone's lives to know that people in this room have suffered. There are people in this room who have suffered and who continue to suffer. And yet to those who suffer, Jesus looks at the poor and the hungry and the sad and the excluded and the insulted and the rejected. And he says, do not judge. Be merciful. And so whatever you've been through, Be merciful because your Father in heaven has been merciful to you. These aren't just words. They're not simply suggestions to be considered and thrown out when life gets hard and you feel those very real feelings. And so Jesus concludes his teaching on the plane with one more very brief story. This is what he says. He says, The one who hears my words and does not put them into practice... It was like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. And the moment that torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. So church, when we face our next trial, because we will, we'll, we'll face trials, we'll face tribulations, but when we face our next trial or our next injustice or our next torrent, is it going to tear us down because we chose judgment instead of mercy? Are we going to let it or them destroy us because because we refused to put Jesus' words into practice because we insisted we were the exception and not the rule? We cannot let ourselves off the hook for mercy. We can't. Unless we don't want to receive any mercy ourselves because the measure that we use will be used for us. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. Do not judge. Be merciful. Let's be a merciful people. Church, Jesus loves you. And he came to this earth and he lived his life to show you 
and me and everyone else sitting around you that you can see and those outside and, and the worst of us out there. Mercy. Acts chapter 2, our favorite chapter, right? Tells us, the, tells us that the very first Christians were devoted to these teachings. Are we devoted? Are we devoted to Jesus' teachings? Even the hard ones. Even the ones that can feel or seem rather impossible. If there's something or someone in your life who you don't know how to show mercy to this morning, perhaps be willing to step back. Pray. Spend some time reflecting on your own life. And, and proverbially, metaphorically rather, look at the person in the mirror. Where has God been merciful to you? That's where this journey to mercy and forgiveness begins. And so Jesus extends a hand of mercy to you today. And if you're ready in any way to receive that mercy, then we welcome you as fellow sinners. Amen? As fellow sinners. Amen? We are there, guys. It's all of us. We welcome you because you're not unique in the sense that, that you're worse than anybody else here. Paul said he is the worst of sinners, and I'm like, no, I don't think I am. But whatever, we can argue about it in a few hundred years. We welcome you to receive the mercy that comes through Jesus. Jesus.